to Oral Max Facts. This is your host, Ruthie Patel, bringing you the most evidence-based topics in oral and maxillofacial surgery. Today, we are going to change things up a little bit. We actually have a guest speaker on the show. It is my honor today to introduce you to our guest speaker, Dr. Jimmy Harper. Let me tell you, Dr. Harper is truly an inspiration. One minute is certainly not enough to describe the accomplishments of this man, but I will try my best. Dr. Harper is an Ohio native from Columbus. He received his oral maxillofacial surgery training at, of course, the Ohio State University. In addition to owning his private practice, he has been involved in academics since 1990. Dr. Harper has been teaching at the University of Cincinnati where he also served as the Director of Residency Education for seven years. Dr. Harper is active in local, state, and national organizations. He has served as a past president of the Cincinnati Dental Society and the Ohio Society of Oral Maxillofacial Surgeons. He also served as a delegate to American Association of Oral Maxillofacial Surgeons and the Ohio Dental Association. Additionally, Dr. Harper is a fellow of the American Association of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery and a diplomat of the American Board of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery. Not only that, he was also a board examiner for medicine anesthesia section in 2002. Dr. Harper, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the invitation and forward to working with you in the future also. Absolutely. This episode is the beginning of our anesthesia section. We wanted to kickstart with the complications of office-based anesthesia first. So today's talk is on laryngospasm. First, we'll start with definition, then we'll address morbidities associated with laryngospasm. Then we'll move on to prevention and treatment and end with a case discussion. So Dr. Harper, can we just start with what is laryngospasm? Yeah, uh, by definition, laryngospasm is an exaggerated and prolonged reflex closure of the uh, true and false vocal cords due to stimulation of the uh, superior laryngeal nerve. And it leads to a, uh, a initially a closure of the, uh, the, the uh, true vocal cords, which are adducted. And, and initially, this become, creates a partial obstruction. But as the laryngospasm progresses, uh, we get a closure of the uh, false vocal cords as well as a elevation of the larynx against and the uh, descent of the epiglottis to seal off the airway, uh, which creates sort of a ball valve closure over top of the uh, laryngeal inlet. Uh, this leads to a complete obstruction of the larynx. Uh, it's primarily a problem associated with stage 2 anesthesia, probably due to an increased excitability of the adductor neurons. And with a normal uh, reflex, uh, if you get something on your vocal cords, they're going to spasm, you're going to cough, and you're going to expel the foreign body. Uh, in this case, you get half the reflex. You get the closure, but you don't get the ex uh, expelling of the foreign body, and it leads to a prolonged obstruction of the airway, which uh, can deteriorate fairly quickly. Uh, you start out with what is an anesthetic urgency that can quickly deteriorate to uh, an anesthetic emergency with severe hypoxia, uh, and if not promptly treated, can actually lead to cardiac arrest. Okay, so how do you differentiate between partial and complete laryngospasm? So as, as you're looking at uh, a partial laryngospasm, this is usually the, the start of the, of the laryngospasm, and you get a closure of the, um, uh, an adduction of the, of the true vocal cords. That's a partial closure, so you can still hear a little bit of strider. It's a high-pitched strider usually. 
Uh, and so there is a little bit of air movement versus as it progresses to a complete laryngospasm, then you see the other signs associated with, uh, uh, with a significant uh, obstruction of the airway. So all move, air movement ceases. Uh, as they try to breathe in, you get that classic uh, rocking horse movement. The abdomen goes out, the chest sucks in. Uh, you see some suprasternal retraction. Uh, in addition, if you're monitoring entitled CO2, you're going to see no CO2 movement. The patient quickly starts to desaturate. Gotcha. Thank you for clarifying that. So some of the complications with complete laryngospasm could be hypoxemia and also what we call negative pressure pulmonary edema, correct? Absolutely. Uh, so so as, as you try to create these uh, inflammatory forces, you create a, a significant negative pressure, which can cause a pulmonary transudate, which leads to potentially an obstructive pulmonary edema, also called POPE. And with the patient desaturates, especially in younger patients, you can uh, start to develop significant bradycardias, which can progress to asystole. And, and the problem with kids is that it happens much more quickly than it does in adults because their oxygen consumption, when you look at infants, is, is twice the rate of that of, of an adult. And their residual uh, volumes are, are much smaller also, so they have much less reserve. Uh, so they tend to desaturate much more quickly. And, and the problem with kids is, is that. Uh, the heart doesn't like hypoxia very well. Hypoxia is the number one reason for cardiac arrest in children. What I learned as a resident a long time ago is that all things cardiac in children are respiratory until proven otherwise. Yeah, that's a really good point. And um, can you just comment on how often do we see COPE or post-obstructive pulmonary um, It's It's not asthma? real common, uh, but it but can occur, uh, especially with uh, prolonged uh, laryngospasm. And, and the problem with it is that, that it's not always immediate. Frequently, you'll see it uh, shortly after the event, but it can occur up to four to six hours uh, post-obstruction. So that's the biggest concern. The concern always is, is if somebody develops post-obstruction, obstructive laryngospasm, how long do you observe them for? And I think that's it's a case-by-case case, uh, uh, event. Somebody who's had mm-hmm. significant uh, bradycardia, uh, I'd be a little more concerned. And the question is always, should you put them in the hospital, observe them overnight, mm-hmm. uh, or do you keep them around for a little while? If it's a partial laryngospasm that's fairly easily uh, broken, then I'd be less concerned about it. But certainly uh, uh, listening to the lungs before you discharge them is probably a reasonable thing to do mm-hmm. if somebody's had significant uh, desaturation, significant uh, bradycardia. You know, it may be reasonable uh, to, to admit them for observation. But again, it's a case-by-case event. So typically after four to six hours, if it doesn't happen, then you're pretty much out of the woods. Um, so we commonly encounter laryngospasm in kids, as you mentioned earlier. But what are some of the morbidities associated with laryngospasm? Uh, in most cases, the laryngospasm will respond without sequelae, but they can develop significant oxygen saturation, which can lead to bradycardia. Uh, they can develop a neg- the negative pressure of pulmonary edema or pope. In efforts to um, uh, correct the uh, laryngospasm with positive pressure, you can lead to gastric insufflation, which can lead to gastric distension, which can lead to emesis, which can lead to aspiration. And also, uh, with significant hypoxia, uh, you can uh, develop cardiac arrest, uh, especially right. in kids. Yeah. So it's a, it's a condition that needs to be recognized and treated rapidly to prevent these complications from happening. So how does one go about um, recognizing risk factors that could lead to laryngospasm? So, so there, there are many uh, risk factors associated with laryngospasm. Some of these are uh, patient-dependent, some of them are procedure-dependent, and some of them are anesthesia-related. 
the factors uh, associated with the risk of laryngospasm during anesthesia include young age uh, with infants uh, having approximately uh, three times the uh, rate of laryngospasm as adults. Uh, children uh, and children uh, usually with looking at uh, somewhere between the first year of life and about nine or ten years old are twice the risk as an adult. And again, some of this is, is due to their uh, oxygen reserve and their uh, oxygen consumption, uh, which makes them desaturate and, 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 and certainly increases their, uh, their complications and morbidity. Recent uh, upper respiratory uh, fraction uh, infections present on the day of surgery within the past two weeks uh, can increase the, the risk. Uh, some estimates are as much as 10, 10 times the, the rate of laryngospasm in people with recent, and especially children, with upper uh, respiratory tract infection. Interestingly, passive smoke exposure also increases the risk by uh, almost 10 times the risk uh, of somebody living in a household with, with non-passive smoke exposure. Uh, obstructive sleep apnea has also been given as a cause for uh, for laryngospasm, uh, and, and again, some of it has uh, to do with difficult airway. Some of it because of the respiratory reserve. When you look at an obstructive sleep apnea patient, they tend to have a um, restrictive pattern, and so they desaturate uh, almost as quickly as as very small children do. Uh, so they you have a lot less time to correct that situation. Uh, other factors uh, for perioperative risk include anything that cause, can cause a reactive airway, and this includes uh, folks with asthma, uh, such as and especially those with uh, allergies to, to environmental or associated with uh, exercise. Patients with a dry nocturnal cough, again, thinking about possibly cough-associated asthma, and then a family history of asthma, uh, at, atrophy, uh, or family history of smoking. Those are all things that uh, uh, can increase the risk of reactive airway. Uh, male patients, interestingly, have a higher rate of, of laryngospasm than female patients. Anything that um, can irritate the vocal cords uh, during surgery, uh, such as some of the inhalational anesthetics, if you look at desflurane, look at isoforane, uh, if you're doing an open airway technique, those are going to increase the risk of airway irritation, increase the risk of laryngospasm. Mm -hmm. uh, when you think about uh, drugs such as ketamine, which can increase secretions, uh, can also trigger laryngospasm. And then uh, things such as blood, saliva that drain, drip down into the uh, airway, uh, which is commonly seen with oral surgery procedures, uh, those can also increase the uh, risk of laryngospasm. And then uh, trying to instrument, put in, uh, a tube in early uh, in a light plane of anesthesia can mm -hmm. trigger laryngospasm, uh, and uh, uh, any airway abnormally may put you at increased risk, or any procedure uh, that's done on the airway, such as a tonsillectomy, can, can increase the risk of, uh, of uh, laryngospasm. Okay, so you talked about oxygen desaturation. Um, I guess just thinking about the the curve, where where do obese patients fall? So, so there have been some studies done where they've estimated. Uh, the study was originally done looking at succinylcholine and how long do you have before a patient's going to desaturate after a dose of succinylcholine, and obviously. Uh, they didn't allow uh, patients' oxygen sats to drop to zero, uh, but the, through a mathematical formula, they calculated uh, looking at uh, a healthy person who's been pre-oxygenated versus an infant versus an obese patient versus a uh, patient with significant uh, uh, medical issues. And, and 
patients with obese patients are going to desaturate very similar to an infant. So they're going to go desaturate uh, mm -hmm. almost at twice the rate of someone who's not uh, uh, obese. Uh, so gives you much less time to, to manage just a, a laryngospasm, especially once you hit the point where the sats start to drop when you drop below 90, uh, you've got about 90 seconds in, in patients to, to turn things around. So, so time is really of an essence to recognize this early and to, to treat it early is really important. Mm -hmm. Are these risk factors different in adults than in, in children? Well, probably the, the, the biggest risk factor that's different is just at young age. Uh, mm -hmm. If you've got somebody who's got asthma, who's got uh, a smoker, uh, who's had a recent upper respiratory tract infection, certainly puts them at, at increased risk. Maybe not the, to the same level as a, an infant or a small child, but it does increase mm -hmm. your risk of developing uh, uh, some uh, uh, oryngospasm and possibly airway issues. Okay. And patients with diabetes who may also have uh, GERD or something. They to worry sure, about because maybe. because then you're looking at um, uh, irritants from below. So mm -hmm. uh, you know we classically think about things dripping down from above, uh, but certainly patients with a history of reflux, with uh, GERD, with diabetes, any kind of gastroparesis puts them at increased risk of mm -hmm. uh, some emesis and uh, uh, triggering this this event. Okay. All right, so now that we know the definition of laryngospasm and the associated morbidities and risk factors, let's uh, dive into the prevention of laryngospasm. How do we prevent it? So, you know, first of all, looking at kids uh, in particular, but um, um, if somebody, uh, if a child comes in with a, a uh, active respiratory tract or recent respiratory, respiratory tract infection, then the uh, consideration is to postpone or delay the surgery. Party line is probably to delay uh, four to six weeks. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, if if you take the average kid has six to eight respi upper respiratory tract infections a year, mm -hmm. and you're going to delay uh, six weeks uh, before you uh, do a, a general anesthetic on, on a kid, uh, it means that uh, 48 weeks out of the year, the kid may not be available <laughs> to put to sleep. Right. So, you know, there is some adjustment that role. And it has to be a case by case. Uh, if you look at Stolting, Stolting suggests uh, in uh, in his book suggests that if a kid has, if somebody comes in with a high fever, they've got a croupy cough, they've got generalized malaise, uh, if they've got a lower respiratory tract component, that the surgery ought to be ought to be delayed. And if you start adding the other risk factors together, then it puts more weight to postponing the surgery. Right. You get a kid who's got asthma. Mm -hmm. uh, you got a kid who lives in a house with a smoker. Uh, those are things that uh, uh, that may make you lean more towards not doing the surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, if things are getting worse with the upper respiratory tract infection, uh, probably uh, makes more sense to postpone it. Uh, if you can get two weeks, uh, uh, at least gives the respiratory epithelium some chance to recover and maybe right. decrease some of that upper airway sensitivity. Uh, when you other re things that you can do uh, for children, uh, younger children, you may want to think about uh, using some sort of supraglottic airway, such as an LMA, rather than doing an endotracheal tube. Mm -hmm. uh, again, a little bit controversial. Uh, one camp would say if you put an endotracheal tube in, you do it appropriately, you paralyze them, then mm -hmm. you have definite control of the airway. Right. Another group says because you're not instrumenting the airway, that there may some, be some advantage to using an LMA. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, at least a consideration. 
think about uh, the anesthetic technique itself. Uh, one of the nice things about using intellectual induction in kids is that, that for kids who are uh, needophobic, uh, uncooperative, mm -hmm. it works very well. But yeah. you, it takes you a little bit of time to get through that second stage, that uh, stage two of anesthesia, the mm -hmm. excitement stage, which puts them at an increased risk and they're sitting at that uh, period of time for a little bit longer. Uh, so you, if you can get an IV, maybe go on to Tiva and use a little propofol and uh, you sort of bypass that, uh, uh, that stage two pretty quickly. If you think about your anesthetic technique, using a maybe using a pump rather than a bump technique, there may be some advantage because mm -hmm. typically, uh, I know from the days when we used Brevitol, we saw uh, laryngospasm or partial laryngospasms were much more common. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was because we sort of skirted set right there on that division between stage two and stage three. And as they started to recover, they dropped into stage three. It sort of triggered them to go into a laryngospasm. Mm -hmm. You manage it by the things we'll talk about. And most of the time, uh, it was a pretty straightforward, pretty routine thing to, to take care of. Uh, consider, especially if you're dealing with somebody who either has a predicted difficult airway based on your exam ahead of time, or um, uh, uh, somebody who you can get by with a lighter sedation, do this as a concert sedation technique, uh, uh, a light IV sedation rather than doing a deep sedation it may help you bypass uh, that stage two where they're more at risk. If you're using ketamine, you've got kids and you uh, that you uh, can't get an IV on, you want to avoid uh, using an inhalational technique, uh, using ketamine, but adding glycopyrrolate to that ketamine. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't routinely use uh, uh, glycopyrrolate when I use IV, but there are a few patients who become very wet, very soupy, uh, and will add ketamine, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and that usually dries them up pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And then um, uh, just your anesthetic technique. Do you do a secured airway at somebody's a little higher risk? Uh, right. Plan on doing uh, an intubation, take control of the airway mm -hmm. versus doing an open airway technique. Those are all things that to take into consideration uh, mm -hmm. as you're trying to manage somebody who is at increased risk for a laryngospasm. Yeah. And also, as you mentioned, um, deeper plane of anesthesia yes. is probably better even for... Um, intubation and even for extubation, it's probably better to wake them up. And let them, and yeah, awake and alert, uh, and and, uh, uh, and and so extubate them when they're when they're light uh, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, rather than than deep. Uh, and when you do an intubation, using a muscle relaxant, uh, you, you think you're deep enough, but if you intubate, the, if you paralyze them first, then they're not going to move, uh, right. and uh, they're not going to, to go into laryngospasm, even if you stimulate the airway. Obviously, if you're doing an open airway technique, you need to be very uh, good with your suctioning and uh, pay attention to secretions, mm -hmm. both uh, having a good throat pack in place, make sure that throat pack's not saturated. If it is, replace it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, make sure that it doesn't drift back uh, into the posterior airway, that uh, it's going to stimulate uh, a laryngospasm also. So those are kind of factors to pay attention to, to uh, hopefully avoid uh, mm -hmm. developing laryngospasm, especially when you have a patient who's at a higher risk and you, you can't avoid delaying the surgery. Right. Those are really good points. I guess that takes us to our um, talk about the treatment options for laryngospasm. How do you manage laryngospasm in office? or in the operating room? Well, first of all, with any emergency, you have to think in kind of a differential diagnosis. Is mm -hmm. this a laryngospasm? Uh, 
Could be just soft tissue obstruction, tongues falling back, patients deep. Uh, could be that the patient's apneic just because you pushed a, a dose of medications mm -hmm. and the patient may need some assisted ventilation. Uh, could be bronchospasm. Could be if you use a, a narcotic, especially fentanyl, you could be dealing with a rigid chest. So those are all things right. that sort of have to be in your differential when mm -hmm. somebody starts to uh, develop an inability to, to ventilate uh, uh, and oxygenate. So, so those are all things to think about with all potential emergencies or urgencies, and especially with airway emergencies, uh, it's a good idea to call out the time when you as soon as you recognize it. Okay. That puts everybody on the same page uh, with your staff. Uh, right. People start thinking about what do I need to get, uh, uh, mm -hmm. because time uh, is our enemy uh, when it comes to to uh, uh, laryngospasm. And the quicker we can manage it, the the better the outcome is for the patient. So, mm -hmm. so I've trained my staff so that. When, when somebody uh, has any kind of airway issue, whether they're, they're saturated, just starting to drop, we call out the time off the clock. So everybody knows mm -hmm. that clock's ticking, and we know that we've got uh, somewhere less than three minutes to turn things around or we're going right. to have some problems. So, so I think that's real important, and that's a, yeah. a good habit to get into. Uh, and you got to practice it. Uh, mm -hmm. If you don't, you forget about it. And then right. when yeah. you have an emergency, you kind of fall apart. Uh, uh -huh. uh, as I say, you descend to your level of training. Yeah. Uh, I guess also getting your staff on the same page as Absolutely. you to make because, sure everybody because knows what to do. Because they're going to be the people running to grab things for you. You're going to mm -hmm. have to be there at the patient. They need to know where to find the stuff that you need, yeah. uh, and you need to practice it uh, as with all all, all emergencies. Mm -hmm. um, so as, as if we suspect we've got a laryngospasm, we call out our time, and there are some things that we do simultaneously. First thing, turn up the O2. Uh, okay. So we want to increase our oxygenation. So if there is some air moving, uh, that we may be getting some what they call uh, apneic oxygenation. Uh, okay. So so open open it up uh, uh, to to increase our O2, uh, and and simultaneously at the same time we reach over and turn over the O2, we want to open up the airway. Uh, okay. And whether you do the triple airway maneuver. Uh, uh, chin uh, lift, head tilt, uh, jaw thrust, uh, or you do the quadruple maneuver that uh, uh, has been suggested, turn the head 30 degrees one way or the other, mm -hmm. uh, seems to improve the open airway. Uh, so, so we want to open the airway. If it's just an airway obstruction because the tongue's falling back, that should open things. Patients should start to spontaneously breathe, uh, and uh, or at least you can move air uh, if, you, if you try to assist ventilation. Mm -hmm. Another thing that... Uh, people have suggested is what they call the Larson maneuver, which is to basically take your thumbs and place them in that little notch right behind the earlobe between the posterior border of the ramus and the mastoid process and apply inward pressure okay. uh, with your thumbs. And, and it, it works. Does it work because you're stimulating the patient and you're taking them a little lighter plane of anesthesia because you're stimulating them? Mm -hmm. Or does it do something to break the laryngospasm? Uh, by another mechanism, I'm not sure, but it's been reported that that can be effective. So you can do that at the same time you do a jaw thrust. You just put a lot of inward pressure uh -huh. to, uh, okay. to, to manipulate that area. So you turn up the O2, you've opened the airway up. Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, if you're thinking laryngospasm, you know, there's something stimulating the airway. So you mm -hmm. want to pack off your wound. So either if you don't have a soak throw pack, sometimes you can just pull that over the wound or grab okay. a four by four and mm -hmm. put it over, over the wound so that you don't have blood continuously mm -hmm. soiling the airway uh, and then suction the airway out. Uh, uh, grab your, change to a tonsil suction, uh, mm -hmm. suction the uh, posterior pharynx. Um, uh, uh, you go down, you go up. Uh, 
because sometimes there are nasal secretions and uh, especially uh, spring and fall when it's allergy season for a lot of folks, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of times there are a lot of nasal secretions and, and that can go a long way to uh, taking that stimulus away. And all that really should uh, uh, take place fairly quickly. Uh, it's been suggested that if you grab a hold of the mandible, pull the mandible forward or pull the tongue forward. If you've got a complete lingual spasm, you may mm -hmm. pull the epiglottis off the top of the uh, airway inlet, and that may uh, allow some oxygen to get in and help break that laryngeal spasm also. Okay. Uh, and then once you've done those maneuvers, you want to assess for a patent airway. And that may be applying a little bit of positive pressure ventilation mm -hmm. uh, with your nasal hood or with a uh, bag valve mask. Uh, some It's been suggested to push on the chest uh, mm -hmm. and auscultate, just uh, listen for that huff of air uh, that comes out when you put a little pressure on the chest. Mm -hmm. uh, if you do, if you hear that uh, air movement when you do that, then, then you've probably uh, broken the laryngospasm. Uh, if the airway still seems to be obstructed, uh, mm -hmm. then it's time to start escalating your your, your treatment. Uh, uh, so uh, that that first stage of, of treatment should uh, have taken place within about 15, 20 seconds. You should be able mm -hmm. to do all those things right. to try to open the airway. Uh, if things aren't getting better, then uh, you want to try to break the, the, the laryngospasm mechanically. Usually you're going to require a full face mask to do that. Okay. Uh, in our office, we have we keep hanging by the chair. We have mm -hmm. a, a bag valve mask. Uh, it's a one-time use. We use it. We throw it away. We get another one if we okay. need to uh, because you can get much better uh, positive pressure ventilation than you can with a uh, uh, nasal hood and trying to hold the mouth shut and trying to squeeze that. So mm -hmm. uh, so it needs to be close by because if somebody's going to go down the hall and find it, uh, you know, <laughs> there's another 20, 30 seconds off that right. that. 90 seconds or two minutes that you had so it has to be available mm -hmm. uh, we also keep a pediatric bag uh, and, and you want to have a, a, a mask that's going to fit the kid the size of the kid so you need to, to do that ahead of time so you need an assortment of masks you need to have that available mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, a lot of times if we suspect that somebody's having a little difficult with the airway uh, mm -hmm. even before we think we're going to get to that point somebody's taking it out of the, the bag putting things together so that if we mm -hmm. need to, it's there and available. Yeah. Uh, and staff's been trained to do that automatically, uh -huh. so so that's available. And do you also keep Breslow tape or something around? We have. For kids, what we do is is we actually have a, a, a kit that the I.O. drill comes in, and inside that we have not only the I.O. drill, but we have some manual I.O. Uh, cannulas in, in case that uh, our, our I.O. doesn't work. If, if this is somebody we're breathing down and we mm -hmm. couldn't get an airway and they're crashing very quickly, it gives us the opportunity to have I.O. right there available for us. Gotcha. Uh, but we also have the Braslow's just inside that. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and any emergency with kids, uh, you don't want to be calculating. You want right. to, there, there are a couple of programs out there uh, available on the internet that you can download on your computer that will allow you to mm -hmm. um, plug in the kids' weight. We've started doing that, so we now have a printout that we take into the room. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, did that today uh, that lists all the emergency drugs by dose, by weight, right. uh, so, so that you don't have to think. You want, you want to have that stuff available because again uh, when you're sitting there trying to figure out the math and the clock is ticking and the sats are dropping uh, mm -hmm. it gets harder and harder to think and and so it should be automatic um, 
So with, with the uh, positive pressure ventilation, uh, there have been two techniques described. Both of them uh, are, have been shown to be effective in some patients to break the ringer spasm. One is just a bag valve mask the patient and squeeze the bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the biggest thing about that is you don't want to squeeze too fast, but you also you don't want to squeeze too hard right. so that you exceed the uh, uh, esophageal uh, gastric sphincter uh, and, and fill the stomach with gas, which can increase mm-hmm. the risk that they're going to have a full stomach and end up with some emesis, which can further uh, make for a bad day. The other way is to hold the mask on and just hold some CPAP pressure on, and, mm-hmm. and it's been shown that uh, that can also break the laryngospasm. If that fails, and usually that can be done pretty quickly, uh, you start, in, and probably simultaneously, if I've got somebody that I think is laryngospasm, while I'm um, holding that pressure, I've, I'll give them a bolus of uh, propofol because okay. I want to deepen the anesthetic, and by deepening the anesthetic, Setting. Hopefully, I'm going to move them from stage two to stage three, which is going to make my bag valve mass ventilation work better. But before we get there to deepen the anesthetic, we have to ask ourselves, and, and this really should be decided ahead of time, is this going to be a difficult airway? And is this a difficult airway that we were going lighter anesthetic and we wandered into stage two? Mm-hmm. Or was, uh, or were we in stage three and we've got a laryngeal spasm? If we deepen them, the thing that we have to realize is that we're going to have to manage a difficult airway and have you prepared for that ahead of time. Right. Uh, and that's a whole other talk in itself. But um, to go to is to, to give them a little more drug, deepen it. Usually uh, a half milligram per kilogram of propofol. So uh, 35 to 50 milligrams on an average adult uh, uh, will deepen the, the plane of anesthetic. And a lot of times that will break the laryngeal spasm. The other choice is to get, go lighter. A little harder to go lighter because mm-hmm. you've got to reverse your, your Versed. takes time. You've got to reverse your fentanyl. takes right. time. You could give the drugs to reverse both, but you may still be waiting a minute uh, mm-hmm. or so before those drugs really start to have an effect. So if you can go deeper, most folks would go deeper in, right. in trying to manage this. Um, and if you once you've done that, if you're not able to ventilate the patient, then the next thing is to think about paralyzing the patient. Uh, mm-hmm. The thing that's causing the laryngeal spasm is we've got muscles that are contracting. If we can relax those muscles, we should be able to break the spasm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you're looking at breaking the spasm, then the discussion is, do you give a sub-intubating dose or do you give a full dose of succinylcholine, which is usually the go-to drug uh, with laryngeal spasm. There are some issues with succinylcholine uh, that you mm-hmm. need to be aware of. And again, you want to think this out ahead of time. If you've got a kid who's got a history of muscular dystrophy, there are some other contraindications mm-hmm. or relative contraindications, a family history of uh, malignant hyperthermia. Those are all things or some things to think about. And those right. should have been decisions made ahead of time. So mm-hmm. if you've got a kid that falls into one of those categories, then you're thinking about rocuronium as your drug. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but back to sucks is how much sucks do you give? Uh, and there are two camps here. One camp says give a sub-intubating dose. And it'll be enough to relax the cords. It may not be enough to get full paralysis. But the advantage is that once you break that spasm, the patient will still be able to ventilate some. And the other camp says, well, if, if I don't break that spasm, then I have to give a full intubating dose. Now I've given a second dose of cu- right. succinylcholine. Am I putting this patient at risk of bradycardia uh, just because of the second dose of succinylcholine? Mm-hmm. And also, there's that time issue. Uh, I gave my first dose and uh-huh. time, and I still can't ventilate them, and I'm waiting for that dose to work, which may be mm-hmm. 45 to 60 seconds. Uh, that sat is continuing to drop down, down, down. Right. Uh, and so, so uh, if if you're at that point where you've done everything up to this point, uh, you have to make the decision, do I give a full intubating dose? Mm-hmm. If you give a full intubating dose, that's going to last 8 to 10 minutes. Right. So once you break the spasm, 
uh, you're not done because now you have to bag that patient for that eight to ten minutes uh, mm-hmm. to make sure that the, that they keep their sats up. Pay attention to your your ventilation rate because usually it's about sixty breaths per minute uh, when you're in the emergency because you're breathing so fast. You're breathing sixty breaths per minute. And you're breathing for that patient. Mm-hmm. And you're making them alkalotic. So so you need to to watch your rate uh, to make sure you're breathing appropriately. If you can't get an IV, uh, then what do you do? The folks have talked about giving a a sublingual or submental. Uh, dose of succinylcholine, usually you double the dose, so you're looking at two milligrams per kilogram, mm-hmm. uh, sublingual or submental, uh, or you can give an IM, uh, similar mm-hmm. to giving uh, epinephrine IM, uh, right. but if you give it IM, you've got to go four times the dose, so four milligrams mm-hmm. per kilogram. The onset is actually, to a full paralyzing dose, is going to be about four to five minutes, but right. usually there's a, again. but usually Within a minute, you're getting that sub-intubating dose, kind of like you're given okay. the dose uh, of the 10 to, or 10 to 20 milligrams. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that may be enough to break the spasm. But the other side of it is that it's going to take longer for that to go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now you've got, instead of 10 minutes, you may have 20 minutes that you've got to bag that patient for. Right. If you decide to use rocuronium, mm-hmm. uh, the big downside of rocuronium is that it's going to last a lot longer. Right. Uh, yeah. And if you give a full intubating dose, you're probably looking at uh, a patient who's going to be paralyzed for 30 to 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Sugamidex is available. Sugamidex, uh, I called uh, my local drug supplier that uh, uh, that we that we use, and they will only sell it in packs of ten. A pack of ten uh, Sugamidex is about sixteen hundred and fifty dollars. Wow. Uh, so <laughs> it's 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 expensive. Uh, so the the question becomes: Do you do like in the old days where you could only buy thirty two vials of dantrolene and you split it with an office, so you keep half of it and they keep half of it, or do you keep a couple of vials of, of uh, uh, sugamidex around? But certainly, uh, uh, if it when it becomes uh, uh, generic, then it may be a, an affordable drug to have available, and mm-hmm. then probably what will happen is succinylcholine will go away. Uh, but I see right now that most folks are probably still going to use succinylcholine. Mm-hmm. So what happens if you give an intubating dose and they're still not breathing, you still can't open that airway, then you have to start thinking about, you know, is am I missing something? Or is this a bronchospasm? Is this somebody that I need to think about or doing a crike? Uh, and, mm-hmm. and so that certainly has to be something that you have available. Uh, and again, if this is a patient, difficult airway type patient, we have a difficult airway box that comes in the room and we have a difficult airway person right. which has got the stuff in there that I need to do a an emergency crike if I had to. And again, that's another talk, but you want to have that available. Also, uh, with kids, it's really a, a needle tracheostomy rather than a needle crike because the crike mm-hmm. in, in, in a young kid is probably a millimeter tall. And so you're probably not going to find that, but you're looking right. for an airway space to, so that you can ventilate that patient until you can break the spasm. Mm-hmm. If a patient, uh, if you've got a repeat to succinylcholine, especially in kids, think about mm-hmm. uh, adding atropine with that second dose. Some people will give it with the first dose, but uh, at least you need to have it available and maybe drawn up to prevent bradycardia. Okay. So every time you give your socks, you would wait for how long before you consider intubation? Well, what I would do is try to ventilate them. Uh, If I can't ventilate them, then most of the time, if I'm thinking about, if I'm giving an intubating dose of socks, I probably would not put a tube in unless I anticipated further airway issues. Otherwise, I would bag them, recover them. Okay. And then make a decision to proceed or to stop. There's been significant hypoxia, significant bradycardia. We're done for the day. And then the question is: is do we start thinking about pope and 
Mm-hmm. Uh, do we think about sending the hospital for observation or keeping them around for a while? Uh, and again, I think that's a case by case basis, but, but certainly, uh, I wouldn't necessarily go straight to intubation unless mm-hmm. I anticipated that, uh, there's something else going on. Right. Uh, and as I say, fortunately, in 30 years, I've given probably in the office, I've probably given a sub-intubating dose of sucks twice, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, I was able to break the spasm just with positive pressure. Mm-hmm. That was enough to do it and, and uh-huh. we were able to proceed and finish the procedure. So if you suspect laryngospasm, let's say you did succinylcholine and you decided to abort the procedure, how do you approach the family? How do you go about telling them? I, again, I, I would discuss that we had just had some airway issues, and I'm just concerned mm-hmm. that they have a reactive airway, and we want to do what's in the patient's best interest, and mm-hmm. we want to be safe, and uh, so I think we need to postpone this and, uh, mm-hmm. and live to fight another day, basically. <laughs> it's, you know, if you've got somebody with a reactive airway, you know, part of the issue is figure out why they had the reactive airway. If it's just because technique, you know, you can change your technique if you're breaking right. somebody down and, you know, they've had a recent or airway issue or uh, upper respiratory tract infection or they live in a house with a smoker, you know, then those are factors that maybe we can do some things to modify and uh, do some things to optimize the next time around uh, mm-hmm. and, and maybe change our anesthetic technique. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Harper, for such a comprehensive treatment planning definitely useful for practical purposes and clinic, as well as for board prep. So are we ready for a case now? Mm-hmm. So let's uh, discuss a case scenario to highlight some of the key points that are essential for prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of laryngospasm. So you guys know this case is actually a real case from anesthesiology case report. It is modified to make it more relevant to us. Here we go. A 10-month-old boy weighing 8.5 kilogram was taken to the operating room at 11 o'clock at night without any pre-medication for emergency surgery of an abscess of the maxillary tooth. His past medical history was unremarkable, except for an episode of upper respiratory tract infection about four weeks ago. The mother also volunteered that the patient is exposed to smoking at home from his father. He has been fasting for past six hours. His preoperative evaluation was normal with his blood pressure of 85 over 50, heart rate of 115 beats per minute. His oxygen saturation was 99% on room air. The procedure was expected to be very short, so general anesthesia with inhalation induction and maintenance without tracheal intubation was planned. Anesthesia was induced with inhaled sevoflurane in a 50-50 mixture of oxygen and nitrous oxide. Two minutes after the loss of eyelash reflex, the first episode of airway obstruction with inspiratory strider and suprasternal retraction was successfully managed by jaw thrust and manual positive pressure ventilation. An IV line was then obtained while the child was manually ventilated. Anesthesia was then maintained by face mask with 2% expired sevoflurane in a 50-50 mixture of oxygen and nitrous oxide. Sufentanil was given intravenously, and the surgeon was allowed to proceed five minutes later. In about 15 minutes into the surgery, an inspiratory strider was noted again. Manual face mask ventilation became difficult with an increased resistance to insufflation, and oxygen saturation dropped rapidly from 98% to 78% associated with a decrease in heart rate from 115 to 65 beats per minute. A new episode of laryngospasm was immediately suspected. Despite a jaw thrust maneuver, 
positive pressure ventilation with 100% oxygen and administration of two bolus doses of IV propofol at 0.6 milligram per kilogram, the obstruction was not relieved and oxygen saturation decreased to 52%. A 0.2 milligram IV bolus dose of atropine was injected and IV succinylcholine was given at a dose of 16 milligram, followed by tracheal intubation. Shortly after that, surgery was quickly completed. Tracheal extubation and postoperative recovery were uneventful. That is the end of the case. Hey, well, that was an exciting case. Yeah, uh, it, kids, when kids desaturate, it's scary, especially when they become bradycardic. Right. Uh, you start thinking about the heart uh, doing some very, very bad things. And so, obviously, this is a young kid, very challenging case, uh, associated morbidity with the, the laryngospasm. Mm-hmm. So, what are some of the risk factors in this kid that we... So, so obviously, the, one of the first risk factors is this kid's under the age of one, so he's uh, uh, at a higher risk uh, compared to an adult, uh, probably three times the risk. Estimated that as you age, uh, risk of laryngospasm decreases by about 11% per year. So can't do much about age. You're kind of stuck with that. Right. Uh, the fact of uh, smoking exposure. So uh, the fact that his father smokes increases the risk by uh, almost 10% uh, young children. So um, triggers it. Uh, the recent uh, upper respiratory tract infection, uh, the fact that, um, that he had a recent upper respiratory tract infection increases his risk. Again, this is an emergency case, so you're kind of stuck with that. So we're kind of adding up that this patient, we should start thinking about anticipating that this kid's going to have a reactive mm-hmm. airway, and this is probably going to be something that uh, that we're going to have to deal with. The fact that we're doing a procedure on the oral cavity with the risk that we're going to have blood, we're going to have saliva, mm-hmm. we're going to have pus that potentially could drain down to the uh, uh, larynx and trigger uh, a laryngospasm sure, certainly uh, increases um, our chances of, of developing a laryngospasm. And then um, just the depth of anesthesia, if this kid's not out of stage two anesthetic if he's just kind of floating along that one mac is mm-hmm. is 50 percent of the patients don't respond so he's still in a lighter plane of anesthesia mm-hmm. that uh, again we're we're playing with fire here and it's more and more likely that uh, we're going to end up with some problems mm-hmm. and um can you just comment on how did they go about making a diagnosis of laryngospasm? So, so as 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 you look at this patient, uh, one of the issues is uh, is he moving air at all? Is this inspiratory strider that they're they're hearing? Is this because the throat the tongue has just dropped back? You know, initially mm-hmm. they managed it by jaw thrust uh, and some positive pressure ventilation. You know, Initial first thought, and maybe just trying to talk yourself out of the this kid's prone to it. You say, well, probably right. just a little airway issue. Tongue's probably dropped back, so I'll open it up. But certainly, uh, when he started to develop the sternal tug and the uh, rocking horse movement, no breath, breath sounds, no entitled CO2 return, those are all things that uh, make you think that we've got somebody who's uh, got a major airway issue going on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as this progressed, the fact that it became hypoxic and significant bradycardia, 65 in a, a heart, rate, heart, heart rate of 65 in a, in a young child is fairly significant bradycardia and uh, at the point where you're starting to think about CPR uh, right. uh, when uh, the heart rate drops to that point. And also his oxygen saturation dropping down. To yes, yeah, yeah. So, so very scary case. Right. Quickly can lead to cardiac arrest. 
how could they prevent awareness spasm in this case? Well, well, certainly the kid has a lot of risk factors that make you think that he's at a much higher risk of having a reactive airway. Uh, and so as you're looking at reactive airway, you want to um, think about how can you minimize the reactive airway. And, and certainly um, you want to avoid manipulation of the airway at lighter planes of anesthesia. Uh, if you're think, you might think about the, uh, either an LMA or if you're thinking about an endotracheal tube, make sure you have adequate depth of anesthesia and paralyzed prior to putting the endotracheal tube in. The, the fact that uh, they use SIVO, uh, again, you're going to sit in stage two longer uh, so you mm-hmm. may have more risk if you changed over to a uh, propofol induction technique, uh, would have maybe bypassed that uh, and could have gotten to a deeper plane of anesthesia, so maybe less issue. Although there's no consensus in literature, right, in regards yeah, to yeah. IV being superior to another You know, again, yeah, yes and no. I mean, yeah. the, the fact that you sit in stage too longer is mm. going to put you at more risk yeah. uh, if you do things to manipulate the airway. Uh, and manipulating the airway can include just something dripping back there, including mm-hmm. post-nasal drip, yeah. uh, saliva. And so, so it definitely seems to be a phenomenon associated with with lighter planes of anesthesia in particular, mm-hmm. being in that excitement stage of anesthesia. Right. Uh, so if you can get out of there and get deeper quicker, there may be some advantage to, mm-hmm. to even though the literature doesn't strongly support the fact that, that one is better than the other, it, it, it will help you get through there a little more quickly. Also, I would think that spraying the vocal cords with topical anesthetic would be beneficial, but it's actually contraindicated. And again, how long does it take local anesthesia to work? And right. if you're spraying the cords, uh, you may be you may be triggering it uh, to, mm-hmm. to to trigger laryngospasm. Folks have talked about um, uh, doing either transtracheal injection if you've got a laryngospasm that you're having trouble breaking, mm-hmm. or do a block current and superior laryngeal nerve blocks to uh, anesthetize the air. Way to take some of that away, but again, you've got time. If you've got a, a laryngospasm, then uh, if you develop a laryngospasm, that's probably uh, the carts, the horses, uh, probably already out of the barn. So uh, doing those after the fact, but maybe if you anesthetize those tissues, uh, again, uh, I, I think that probably short of that, you can do some things to, mm-hmm. uh, to get to a deeper plane of anesthesia. You can take definitive control of the airway. Uh, and avoid having to do that. Um, and depending on which anesthetic agent you're using, uh, desforane uh, can be very irritating to the airway, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, isoforane. Uh, so um, th- in this case, I think they use SIVO, so so that's probably more favorable. Mm-hmm. If you put it in the tracheal tube in, you probably want to take it out when the patient's fairly awake mm-hmm. uh, so that you decrease your risk of uh, developing a laryngospasm mm-hmm. as that patient is emerging uh, deeper planes of anesthesia, passing through that stage an- stage two anesthesia. If it's LMA, you could actually take it out. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But again, you still, you're still in that airway stimulation stage mm-hmm. until they've recovered. And by the same token, they're still... There's still some risk, especially if you have all these other risk factors added that you may have to stay in high alert until the patient's fairly awake. Mm-hmm. That was a really good discussion of the case and a very thorough review of laryngospasm. Do you have any last-minute points you want to add? Uh, just uh, throw a couple things out that, that I have no experience with that I read in the literature. One is uh, doing uh, gentle chest compressions. It has been reported in the literature. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, 
don't know how deep a general chest compression is. They talk about a rate of 20 to 25 compressions per minute. The brachylaryngospasm has been reported to break up to 75%. And again, I have no experience with it, but I just throw that out there, that that is in the literature. Uh, Also, uh, IV magnesium, IV pre-op, there's at least a one or two small case series that seems to decrease the rate of laryngospasm. Again, uh, there are no Mm -hmm. large controlled studies, to my knowledge, that show that. So I just throw those out as uh, as other things that that may be coming down the pike. Uh, The biggest thing about laryngospasm is you've got to uh, recognize it early. You've got to treat it rapidly uh, to avoid some of the uh, potential sequela. Mm -hmm. And uh, the younger you are, the higher the risk from a patient standpoint. Anything that causes a reactive airway is, is uh, or increases the reactivity of the airway is a potential risk. And so it may not necessarily mean you're going to delay the procedure, but it means that if you're going to proceed, that you have to be ready to manage and be okay. vigilant looking for that, uh, uh, that risk of laryngospasm uh, and manage it uh, early. Uh, also think about things coming up from below, GERD, uh, diabetes, anything with gastroparesis uh, mm-hmm. that uh, increase the risk of uh, airway irritation. You want to be very uh, vigilant uh, with control of the oral environment as far as things leaking down the, uh, the throat, uh, uh, blood, uh, irrigation solution throat pack, all those can drift more serially, can trigger laryngospasm, especially in the high-risk patient. Uh, And all the things that we've talked about in that treatment protocol Mm -hmm. need to happen within two, probably maximum of three minutes, uh, and maybe 90 seconds. Uh, It's it's Mm got to happen pretty quickly. So if you're not organized ahead of time, to send somebody looking for sucks, mm-hmm. send somebody looking for an uh, ambu bag is time lost, and right. and it, it increases the chance that you're going to move down that that pathway to some very mm-hmm. bad things happening. Uh, succinylcholine. One of the things that we didn't talk about right. is uh, shelf life of succinylcholine. Just mm-hmm. because it says on the bottle that it's good for a year doesn't mean that it's actually good. It's uh, it loses about ten percent of its uh, effectiveness per per month of it sitting out in, in at room temperature. So it has to be refrigerated. The question becomes: Do you take it out and bring it into the room for each case, which is mm-hmm. what we do, and then put it back right back into the refrigerator so that right. somebody ha- doesn't have to run down the hall. Do you have the syringe with it to inject that succinylcholine? Does somebody have to go down the hall and get that syringe? Again, these are all mm-hmm. things that need to be thought about ahead of time. But yeah. most important, uh, you've got to be vigilant. You've got to recognize it early. You've got to treat it quickly. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point about succinylcholine. This, you see emergency room, it's always sitting out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't know how effective it's going to be even if you give it. Absolutely. It's sitting out all the time. Absolutely. So if you give it and it doesn't work, then the question is, do you need to get another <laughs> bottle and try it again? And, right. Uh, so. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Harper. Um, I think one more point I wanted to make was about uh, integrating your office and doing simulation-based training with your office staff on every management and emergencies on a routine basis, maybe multiple times a year. Yeah. And again, uh, if you don't practice it, you don't remember it. You you do what you practice. If you, you haven't practiced it recently, uh, your brain turns to mush anytime you go into a medical emergency. And, and this stuff has to be automatic, and especially airway stuff. It has to be automatic. Uh, you don't want to get to the point where you're trying to intubate the difficult airway patient and you haven't anticipated it ahead of time. You've got to practice that. You have to have the supplies. They have to be close by. Your staff has to know where they are. Uh, they have to be there to help you. So you do have to practice, and you have to practice regularly. Right. Well, thank you, Dr. Harper, for being with us today.
We can do feature talks on bronchospasm and all other anesthetic emergencies. It sounds good. I'd be happy to do that. Thank you. So thank you for listening to our talk today. If you enjoyed today's talk, please like us on Facebook and on our Instagram page at Olmaxfacts, O-R-A-L-M-A-X-F-A-X. Also spread the word around, like us, give us five-star reviews, and tell your friends about it. We'll be happy to bring you more interesting topics. Until next time. Thank you.